If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I'm your host, Jacob Winograd. So for today's episode, you were going to listen to a interview I did on a live stream that was dual streamed to both my YouTube channel and the LCI YouTube channel, where I interviewed Scott Horton. Those of you who have watched the show for a while or who are familiar with the libertarian anti-war movement are probably already familiar with Scott. He is a major voice in the libertarian anti-war circles. He's been on my podcast several times now, and today... This conversation that you're going to hear is a conversation about the current events going on in Israel and in Gaza. And although the episode I did with Kyle Anzalone was great for painting some of the broad strokes as to the history there, and we focused a lot on like the current conflict and what's going on, Scott is really versed in the history and in debunking certain misconceptions that people have. And really, you could almost say this episode was a contra to Ben Shapiro and other common conservative commentators or pro-Israel Zionist commentators who like to paint a particular version of events when they're looking back at this history and describe things that happened in 1948, 1967, 1979, Camp David, Oslo, and then Camp David again in 2000. And then what happened in 2005, which I did touch on with Kyle, but Scott goes over these things and we get to dive a lot deeper into them. And so, you know, this live stream is, sorry, it was a live stream. So when you listen to it, it's not going to be in a super edited format. We decided to just kind of keep it as it was because it was very natural and conversational. And so, but it was very informative. I think that even if you're someone who is generally pro-Israel, pro-Zionism, kind of accepts the uh, conservative ink answer, you know, I challenge you to listen to the episode with an open mind because you might hear some things that change your perspective. Again, and I, I don't like always having to do this, but it should go without saying, and we say this many times throughout the episode, we are not justifying anything Hamas or any other group or person in the Middle East has done against the innocent civilians of Israel or innocent people who were traveling and who happened to be in the area on October 7th or any other attack before or after. We're just trying to hold a consistent standard of rejecting violence towards innocent people, no matter where they are and no matter what government or body, political body or militia, whatever, that we are looking at. And, you know, later in the conversation, if you listen to it the whole way through, you'll hear me talk with Scott where he raises an important point about Israel's involvement in the creation and the continual support for Hamas. And I make this plea especially to Christians. I'm going to repeat it now and you'll hear it again later. Listen to everything going on and ask yourselves, are these governments, are these politicians and these leaders in America and Israel 
are they doing everything they can to pursue peace? Obviously, we know Hamas isn't, but the point is the narrative is supposed to be a good guys versus bad guys. And you'll think back to the episode I did a little while back where I discussed just war theory and how for a war to be just, all options of peace have to be exhausted. And I think it's clear when we listen to what Scott and I talk about in this episode that these leaders are not, throughout the entire history up until today, doing everything necessary exhausting all possible options to pursue peace. And that means as Christians, we have to be critical of that. We have to say that these leaders, you know, and we pray for them, but that is a prayer to rebuke them in their sin, as God often did with leaders and people in the Old Testament, and Jesus did with the religious leaders of his day. So that is all I have for an introduction. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And again, if these are the kind of things that you like to listen to, please consider donating to LCI or becoming a insider. This gives you insider perks. You get free books, you get behind the scenes, you get to join donor calls and talk with me and other staff at LCI and you get a sneak peek and you know what's coming down the pipeline before everyone else get discounts and early access and things like that. So you can find out more at biblicalanarchypodcast.com. With that said, please enjoy this conversation. Scott, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me again, Jacob. Of course, Scott. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, Scott, of course, for those who who don't know, is the director of the Libertarian Institute. Is that right? Correct. Yes. And then you're like the the senior editor or something at the at antiwar.com. Uh, right. you, you, you've also written tons of books, including I'm proud to hold up my uh, signed copy of Enough Already. Uh, time to end the war on 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 terrorism. There's the sign, the signature. I didn't have this last time. Last time I had you on, I was disappointed. I didn't get to show it off for the world to see. Uh, funny story about that book. That was, and this relates to tonight's topic. Uh, I got that at the Pittsburgh Mises Caucus event back in like, I think it was like okay. 2021. And that was the night. And I was like right next to. I was this. I I was like second row from your speech. And I got to witness the uh, the infamous Zionist heckler when you started talking about what was going on. I think there had just been, like I think like the week before there had been some bombings in Gaza uh, and stuff, and you were starting to talk about what had happened. And this woman gets up and starts shouting you down like five minutes into your speech, and we were all just like, "Who are you?" <laughs> He's shouting down at Scott Horton. Um, but that was actually earlier in my libertarian days and the first time I had heard you talk about this topic, which, of course, we're here to talk about uh, Israel and the Palestinians and what's going on because that conflict, which has really never ended, has uh, suddenly gone from a sort of cold-brewing conflict to a really hot and unfortunately yeah. explosive one. Well, um, you know, Jacob, I'm kind of glad that you mentioned that because I think maybe that's a good place to start, right, is um – a decent, as Jefferson might have said, a decent respect for the opinions of crazy heckler ladies in the audience. <laughs> that, like, it's it's fair, right? Like, we already know about her. That she's been told her whole life that the only people who ever have a critical word to say about Israel simply hate Jews. So for someone to get up there and go, look, man, I've got something to say that's critical of Israel... She just immediately like imputed to me 
whatever worst characteristics you could possibly imagine of like, oh, I see this guy is the leader of the local chapter of Al-Qaeda or whatever, you know, like she's <laughs> whatever. Right. So, um, and then her, her objection was that I said that children had been killed. And she said, no, because the Palestinians claim that anyone up to 30 years old is a child. So therefore <laughs> then, like assuming that ever happened once that they claimed right. an adult was a child. Now that means that it's never a child. And if they ever say it is, then it's always a 30-year-old because that's the iron law of what this lady believes. And it's like, look, if those are your initial premises going in, that like you couldn't possibly be on the other side of this issue unless you were my deadly enemy, then like, yeah, no wonder she was terrified, I guess. And, and, and maybe like on a subconscious kind of Freudian level was terrified because she could tell that obviously I'm not a terrorist and I'm not a Nazi, I'm a libertarian. A whole room full of libertarians just clap for me when at least they know who I am and seem to like me. So I wasn't up there to preach national socialism or anything. I was just <laughs> talking about what was actually going on in the conflict. And yeah. then I think, you know, the fair way to look at that was that the cognitive dissonance there made this just unacceptable. That she right. was going to hear someone who clearly was not her deadly enemy saying the thing that supposedly only your evil deadly enemy could possibly have to say. And so she just got up and stormed out rather than to sit and listen to it. And right. I wish I had handled it better, but I'm not experienced with hecklers. I don't really know. Like in the moment, I didn't know quite what to say to her. But I mean, I think to try to put myself in her shoes, like, and I see this on Twitter every all day, every day, that like, on one hand, it's desperation because they don't really have much of a fair argument to make. But I think also, like, it's a sincere, in a sense, like, it's stupid, but it's like a sincere knee-jerk that you must hate Jews. That's what they say. They all say it. And it's not just yeah. robots trolling me. Like, it's real people who, that's the only way that they can understand there being any controversy about this issue. What do you mean the Israelis are not the good guys and their enemies the bad guys and that's all I need to know, right? You must just hate Jews, they say. And they all say it the same way. And and like, quite frankly, it is like a childish sort of psychological force field, right? Of like protection. I don't have to deal with the facts that you're about to say because I get to dismiss you beforehand as some horrible hater. Well, it's identity then, politics. It's it's the same yeah. thing that the right-wingers like to call out on the left. Yep. So it, it's just a great example of, of horseshoe th theory where suddenly it is okay to not, you know, have a debate about the history, to not look into the facts. You know, suddenly feelings care about your facts when it comes to, we're talking yep. about Israel and Zionism. And, and, you know, that's just a big glaring hole of, of hypocrisy, I think, coming from especially, I mean, you, you kind of expect it maybe from the left, but when it's coming from the right-wingers who make their their whole trope about being, you know, anti-woke culture and anti-PC right. and anti-cancel culture even, and then they're embracing all of those uh, values and tactics over this one issue. Right, and in fact... Look, anyone with any experience on the internet, right? I mean, if you've lived a minute 
on Facebook or Twitter or Reddit, or I'm sure it's the same for Instagram and the rest of these two, particularly if you're in any kind of online independent sort of media, then you know that real anti-Semites are perfectly happy to tell you that they are and want you also to be. And none of them are shy, like 0% of anti-Semites are secret anti-Semites, but who are just too afraid to admit it or something. Like, it's just not a thing. If you're online, you know that's not a thing. I can see it in my mentions. There are some people who unfortunately really seem to dislike Jews who think that they agree with me sometimes in my mentions, but, or sometimes not, sometimes actually like uh, very much disagree with me. But the the difference between them and the people who clearly aren't anti-Semites is as plain as night and day. So, yeah. in other words, yeah. anyone going around going, oh, what you're really saying is that you are an anti-Semite is completely full of it, on the face of it. No difference than just like some trans Antifa communist going, oh, you're a fascist, you're a fascist, just because you're one click to the right of Mao Zedong, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's it's really funny also how uh, I, I think, and I want to I see if you agree with me on this, I think there's actually a lot of people, not just in America, but probably even like in Israel and across the world, who are not really represented by the extremes of this conflict. But the extremes, these loud minorities on either side that are, like, listen, I think the vast majority of Jews and the vast majority of Muslims are not racist and want to live in peace with each other, but there is this loud minority on both who go out of their way to misrepresent the facts to like the more moderate people that are kind of in the same group as them. And you see that with the really extreme Zionist Jews who basically make it out as if you know, the the Palestinian Arabs are just like born terrorists <laughs> from 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 the womb uh, because of their geography or their religion or, or or some kind of reason. And then, you know, you you do see some of the reverse coming from the uh, coming from some Muslims, but the vast majority of what you see, like I've been doing a lot of Twitter spaces lately. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the theme being like, you know, anti-war, calling for peace. And we've had people from all over the world joining these spaces, including people living in Jordan, people living in Israel. Mm-hmm. And like we had this Jew from Israel join the group and he was like, yeah, this occupation is terrible. Uh, there's a lot of Jews that feel the way I do, but we're shouted down by these, you know, angry extreme Zionists. And, I, and it's like, you know what, that makes sense. We have that here in America. We have the loud extremes on the left and right who want to shout down people who are trying to be reasonable. It makes sense that you have that elsewhere too. And so I think, you know, the before we get into the history here, a little bit of a white pill I have, and I wonder if you're noticing it too, is that I think we are starting to win because of social media. As much as social media can be a, a detriment to discourse, I think in moments like this, we're actually seeing the sharing of information and the crossing of like, national and ideological borders on issues like this. And people are realizing, oh, there's actually a lot more people out there like me who who don't want to really be shouted down by either of these loud minorities and just want to see a peaceful resolution to these conflicts. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And it is, um, this is the real promise of the internet. If you go back to like Timothy Leary in the 70s, 
going, wow, man, we'll have the whole world all network together where essentially like we'll make elites not matter anymore because we'll all just be able to talk to each other laterally, you know? And so I, one part that I know you meant this and just sort of left out in your little soliloquy there was about, you know, when you talked about the Israeli Jew who says, oh yeah, I understand that. Then you also have the Jordanian Muslim who oh, yeah. also can yeah. understand the Israeli Jews position too, that, you know, they didn't, take over the country in 1948. They were born there, most of them, right? And they're in right. the same, dropped in the middle of a circumstance, just like everybody else. And and so I think there's so much room for understanding each other's point of view and give and take and compromise. And, and you know, it's true that, quote unquote, my side did this and that your side did that. But you know what? Like, hey, let's get past it. I, I had a guy in my mentions who said to me, listen, I'm a Serb. Let me tell you something. And in fact, I think he said, I'm a Bosnian Serb. And he goes, let me tell you something. Just stop fighting now. Whatever it is, we'll figure it out. But you just stop the fighting. There's no, you don't just keep fighting until, oh, you get one more hill or one more gain. You can negotiate the hill anyway. Just stop killing each other. There's no need to, to do it this way. When you look at that war, yeah. it's just a catastrophe. Never mind the details, but just, you know, 1991 and two through 95 there in Bosnia. It's just an absolute nightmare of um, Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats, and Bosnian Muslims all at each other's throats and committing terrible atrocities against each other. And then they quit, Jacob, and now they figured it out and they get along somehow anyway in this tiny country. And they could just nurse all these grudges. And you know what? I'll never forget what your uncle did to my dad. Or they could not do that. And they could decide to keep going forward in peace and, and try to let bygones be bygones. Because what are you going to do, man? Pick the machete back up and go right back to horror show when you don't have to? You know? And, and in fact, I was reading a book about Bosnia where the guy wrote that, you know, we got, and I, I never even think about this. You never even think about this, do you? There are millions of Germans that live in France, right? The Rhineland after World yeah. War II, all that Rhineland belongs to France now. That line is now drawn in a place where many Germanic people are citizens of France. But guess what? They have essentially enough of like autonomy and minarchy over their lives that it's okay. There's nothing to fight about, right? At least not that I've heard of. And they're able to get along. And, and have, you know, sort of a binational state in that sort of a way. So same thing for the Irish and the English. Well, you think there's not bad blood in Northern Ireland? And yet somehow <laughs> they stopped the war. And yep. there, there are times where it threatens to heat back up and then cooler heads prevail. So far, keep your fingers crossed. It's not perfect. But it goes to show that this, all these comic book narratives about the irrational, implacable enemy, especially a religious-inspired enemy who's got, you know, of course, the other side has got to be Satan behind him and all this stuff. It's just, there's no need to get stuck on those narratives. It just doesn't have to be at all. You know, like, for example, the religious sites in Jerusalem could all just be shared under whatever kind of international consortium of agreement where there's just, you know what I mean? no reason to to fight each other over it. No, yeah, 100%. You know, and I've been talking to, I was telling you before the show, I've been having a lot of conversations with Christians uh, across social media, even Christians like in my own church, people I've known a long time. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I hear from people this growing sentiment of like, you know, it, we've we've been down this road before and you know what? 
all this sending money to Israel and all these wars and American intervention, like it hasn't helped in the past. So, you know, even though like the instinct is there maybe to like help Israel, they're kind of, they're, they're more open to asking questions about, about things. And also, well, we know we've been lied to in the past. So what's the truth here? And, you know, so I'm going back and in preparation for talking to you, I'm listening to people like Ben Shapiro give the history of like, uh, Israel and Palestine. Because like, that's the type of person that people, I think, in my sort of you know demographic are commonly going to go and listen to. They think, well, Ben Shapiro's an educated person, a reasonable person, so he would obviously give all the facts of the history. But I was sitting there listening to it and just, you know, just time after time, listening to him gloss over things and spin things in a certain way. So that that kind of went into my preparation here. And I and I and so I want to go back into the history so that people who are maybe unfamiliar with it or only know one version of it can can hear a different perspective. Um, that like, and from the beginning, because sometimes people are like, "Well, where should you start?" It's worth mention, mentioning that Ben Shapiro, when I listened to, he had this like forty minute summary that I, I listened to. He started in like biblical times, which I thought was weird. And like, listen, I'm a religious Christian, right? Like, and like, really, I'm not like a a casual observer who just goes to church. Like, I believe the the Bible is the the uh, inerrant, inspired Word of God. So, like, I I, I believe that stuff as as literal as you can get. But I, but I'm just like, hold on, why are we talking about the modern political state of Israel and how this conflict started? And going back to biblical times, right? Like it's just that seemed that seemed very weird to me. I I think the best place to start, and if you if you think there's more context we need before it, let me know. But I kind of want to go over the how we got from the UN partition plan in 1947 to then the establishment of the state of Israel, because there's a lot of like there are just completely different sides to this. If yeah. you listen to the Israelite, the, the, the Israeli supporters, they say, well, we d- said in our Declaration of Independence that we wanted to live at peace with the Arabs. So when the mandate, uh, the British mandate ended, we declared independence and invited them to join us. And they said no, and, and they started this war. But then the the Arab story is, you know, they call it something different. They call this the Nakba, the great disaster, and that they were essentially just from day one, once Israel decided to take over, pushed out of all of their their homes, all of their territories into, you know, essentially more or less where, where they are at now. So, what Scott, what's the truth there in terms of how we got from the partition plan uh, in, in 1947 to then the creation of the state of Israel and, and kind of, you know, is is it is it one side is right or the other side is right? Or is there kind of like, you know, uh, the, the truth is, is neither is right. Okay, well, so there's a lot there. First of all, I want to go back to what you said about Shapiro and the Bible and all of that stuff. That I think essentially he's just jerking your chain, right? He's, he's trying to get American Christians to say, oh, this is my story, when it's really mm-hmm. not, right? And, and um, you know, to, to get right to it. I mean, in fact, the Roman exile never happened. So there were some ancient Hebrews who left to go to Europe, sure. And there were, you know, um, there was always a remnant. That's, though. that's the core of, of yeah. you know, Ashkenazi, uh, you know, uh, Jewry over the millennia or whatever is comes from there. But 
they also still stayed there. There was no exile. They were never all forced out in one big cataclysm. And like maybe that's a matter of religious belief for people, but as a historical fact, that never happened. All that happened was the locals there converted. And, you know, um, in fact, it's David Ben-Gurion, who's the founding prime minister of Israel, who wrote a book in 1918 explaining this, about how those farmers over the millennia, too, never left their land. And they had just essentially, when the Muslims came, they didn't eradicate everyone in a terrible war, and they didn't bring their civilian population in to replace the locals. They simply just said, we're in charge now. And essentially, the way it was, was you pay a higher tax rate if you won't convert. So they like force people to convert through taxation, essentially. And so even if you believe in the Bible's mandate that this land has to belong to the sons of Abraham, then these are the same ones. These are the ancient Hebrews. And some guy in my mentions goes, -uh. these are all the sons of Ishmael. And those are all the sons of this other guy. And like, look, man, you don't know that. Right. And there's no real reason to believe that that's true other than your Sunday school teacher told you. But in the reality of the situation, these are the longtime descendants of the ancient Hebrews. In fact, you may have seen on Twitter, someone is posting, people have been posting this Saudi princeling who's, you know, preaching the Israeli side of the story and telling the Palestinians they ought to shut up and give up. And he's telling them, you're not really Arabs. You're not from here. You're, you know, the descendants of all the people who have settled that Eastern Mediterranean shore over the millennia here. And I was like, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> he's saying they're not from Arabia. That's right. That's their land. It's the same people who are still from there. They just came under the rule of the Muslims first, of course, out of, out of Arabia, and then later the Ottoman Empire. But... um so the thing is, if you say that, if you accept the biblical kind of magical supernatural property right that Jews whose great-great-grandparents have spread, you know, their kin throughout Europe, you know, even Northern Europe and Eastern Europe, that they all have the right to return there. Well, then certainly the people who already lived there had the right to stay there. Because yep. they are also descendants of those same people, right? You don't have to deny the maternal Jewishness of the people of Europe or whatever. If that's their tradition, what do I know about their, you right. know, RNA or whatever? All I'm saying is that they don't have any more divine supernatural right to that land than the locals do either. Because well, they're quickly, all descendants of the same people from back when. Right. And, and, and David Ben-Gurion was the one who said so. So how do you like that? And to add a quick little thing to that, because I could, you know, from the Christian perspective argument that uh, the inheritors of the promises of Abraham aren't even the Jewish people anymore. But even beyond, like, let's say I had a Jewish perspective and thought that there was. Okay, you have a right to return to, like, maybe that region, but that doesn't mean there's anywhere that says, now you have a right to go and find people who have settled on the land and built homes there and, and take their land. Right. It's one thing to say you have a right to go to, you know, back to your ancestral region. It's another thing to say, go there and, you know, commit acts of violence against people who are living there peacefully. Like those two things are just, you know, there's a huge jump from one thing to the other. And yeah. 
that needs to be said too, I think. And now here's the other thing we need to talk about before we get to 47 and 48, Jacob, is sort of the whole prehistory of the Zionist movement as it started in the 19, really in the, I mean, it had begun before that, but it really kind of picked up steam in the teens and the 20s and into the 30s. And and then, of course, you know, the major event, as you're talking about, uh, of the creation of the Israeli state came after the Second World War. But there's this whole interwar period there. And, and before that, and I really, I just absolutely must encourage you and your audience to listen to this great podcast. It's 25 hours long. It uh, comes in five or six parts, and it's by Martyr Maid. I hope you follow him on Twitter. His name is Daryl Cooper. And okay. it's yes. Martyr Made on Twitter. And he is just an absolute brilliant historian. Like he read every book about this stuff that has ever been written. And then he does this five-hour podcast. You know, you listen to these things on fast forward and, and just, you know, down it like a shot. And it is just an incredible history of the early Zionist movement. And he is such a great guy and such a great historian. And he brings such sympathy to all different sides of the thing. Um, and so, like, if you follow him on Twitter, you'll see he's giving a fair shake to the Palestinians. Um, but he is certainly not biased against the Israelis or the Zionists. I mean, he tells so much of the story from their point of view, too, about what it was that they were doing and, and how things came to be and the wrongs that happened to them as well and all of these things. So it's really worth everyone's time to listen to, to show the corner that the Palestinian people were being backed into, just as you're saying there, going home even after 2,000 years, fine, whatever, man, like if that's your belief, but going back to this region to create an exclusivist, chauvinist state with a massive ethnic cleansing campaign to rid the area of all the people who already live there so you could have this state at their expense. Well, that's a whole other concept. And yeah. on the face of it, you know, unacceptable in any other circumstance. You know, in this case, I think it really is looked at, Jacob, isn't it? Like it's sort of one last gasp for colonialism after the end of the Second World War, that we don't do colonies anymore. And in fact, Britain is even within, what, a year of the creation of the State of Israel. They bug out of India. Right. And then, you know, the, the European empires start giving up all their African colonies and the rest. You have this whole era of decolonization after the Second World War. But it's like, okay, wait, one more though. We're going to go ahead and we're going to create this essentially at that time. It's, it's different now um, demographically, although the leadership cast is still white European Jews. And we're going to create this one last colony in the Middle East now. And by we, I mean the world powers led by Britain and the United States at the end of the war uh, made this decision to do and to recognize the state of Israel at the expense of the local people there. And so, anyway, it's called Fear and Loathing. Daryl Cooper, martyr made, Fear and Loathing in the New Jerusalem. And you will want to drive around and listen to this thing. It is fantastic. And it's the whole, the whole thing, as I said, it's 25 hours. It ends with the foundation of the state. It doesn't even talk about 67 or any of the more recent history. The whole thing is just the early history here. And it's, man, it's just fantastic. And, it, and it's, it's such an education. Um, so now in, in 47, there's so many misconceptions about this thing. I mean, essentially, um, at that time, 
I believe the Jews were under 20% of the population. I think it was 11. I could be wrong about that. Um, they were certainly a minority. And the Americans pushed through this resolution through the General Assembly, which sort of sounds like, oh, how democratic. Like, oh, all the, you're supposed to picture like all the third world and non-aligned nations and everything in the General Assembly voting for this. Well, that's not true at all. It was only 48. None of them had been seated yet. It was just America and their allied states in Latin America and in Europe that voted for the thing. And then you think the General Assembly has the right to create a nation? Um, and we're not talking about Atlantis in the middle of the ocean here. We're talking about taking away land from one group of people and, or whatever, one mass of folk, however you define them, and giving it to someone else. Imagine the General Assembly saying, actually, all of South Texas up to the San Jacinto now belongs to Mexico because we say so. What would the Texans have to say about that? It would be, yeah, you, uh, let me tell you what you can do with your baby blue flag. It doesn't fly here. You have no jurisdiction here to make any such decision for us. Same thing there. And that was why, in fact, they didn't even pretend. It was called a recommendation for partition. They didn't pretend to have the authority to create a new state there. But still, the thing was completely biased in favor of the Israelis. And to hear them tell the story now, and their partisans tell the story now, well, geez, they could have had a perfectly easy Palestinian state right then, but they rejected it. They rejected it. They were in the middle of being driven out of their homes at Bayonet Point, the ones who weren't raped and massacred, uh, you know, and butchered in the process of what they called the Nakba. And listen, this was a giant kooky conspiracy theory for a lot of years, Jacob. The official story was this was a land without people. And we don't want to hear anything about there were 750,000 people who right. lived there who were all forced march off of their land like some kind of Andrew Jackson and the Trail of Tears here. What are you talking about? That never happened. That's crazy. And it wasn't until years later that they admitted that that was true, that those people had been driven off of their land. And I urge people to look at things like the Dar Yassin massacre, where you have just absolutely Gestapo-like behavior being committed by people who just got there from Europe, where they had escaped the Gestapo somehow with their lives, and then go right to raping and looting and butchering and murdering these innocent people to, to create that panic and that sense of fear and drive them all off of their land and then never let them come home again ever since then. And that's what they call the Nakba. The thing was born in sin. It's horrible. And they drove hundreds of thousands. I mean, look, 750,000 people. That's the population of Austin, Texas. I mean, imagine some kind of forced march removing the people of Austin, Texas from their homes, finally. It's incredible. Um, and, and it makes the kind of things they did to the Indians around here pale just because there weren't that many Apache to force march, you know, um, when you compare it. But um, in any case, here's what's uh, a couple things important about that. Uh, first of all, the, it was the massacres and the purges of 47 leading into 48 that began the war. And in mm. fact, the Arab states didn't even really intervene until Israeli forces started moving into the territory that had been supposedly designated for the Palestinian state. And once they started going that far was when the Arab states jumped into the fight. But here's the thing. Golda Meir had a secret back channel going on, secret negotiations going on with King Abdullah of Jordan at the time. And they made a secret deal that he would not fight Israel, not really. 
he would just take the West Bank because he wanted to be the king of Pan-Arabstan or whatever thing was his ambition. And so, you know, he wanted to take over Syria and Egypt and whatever else was his dream. And so he, step one, deny the Palestinian sovereignty over their own West Bank. So, and then and the Israelis were in on this with him, made a secret deal with him to do this. And so um, that was how even in the middle of the war, the scheme was already on to make sure that the Palestinians would not have their state, even though the Israeli Jews would get theirs. And then at the end of the war, the Egyptians, uh, they negotiated the deal where the Egyptians got to remain the occupiers over the Gaza Strip. Now that remained until 1967. And, you know, it's important for like this interwar period, if people will like pull up a map of Israel most often they'll show they won't show the colonized west bank they'll show the west bank as essentially a whole piece still which it's really not anymore but if you kind of look at a basic political map of israel it looks like the arabs invaded from across the river and stole a big chunk out of israel that's what it looks like that's the west bank of the jordan river but see that's what's left of palestine that in the gaza strip East Jerusalem, which is really on the West Bank, they always count it separately, but this is the 22% that's left of historic Palestine, where the other 78% had already been taken by Israel in the 1948 war. Or again, they went as far as taking West Jerusalem. Um, and so way, way more than the territory they were supposedly allotted in that UN recommendation plan anyway. Right. Um, but then... So that, if you look at that, okay, picture that map, okay, that 67 map and, the, and with the West Bank and Gaza Strip excluded from Israel there, what you're looking at there, that's what they call 1967 borders, right? Or Israel proper, as opposed to including the occupied territories. Now, when you look at that area, Jacob, that is and remains, I believe to this day, something like it was then and, and remains and something very close to an 80-20 super duper majority Jewish state. So that means they can be a Jewish democracy and either faction or three or five factions can all fight and win. And no matter who wins, it'll be Jews that win. It's an 80% super duper majority. Now, not all of the Palestinian Muslims and Christians were cleansed from so-called Israel proper. And approximately 20% of the population are not Jews. And they are, however, something like second-class citizens. And there's even a nation-state law that says officially this is not their country. This country only belongs to the Jews, even though they can also live here, is basically what it says. Um, but only, in fact... The, the coalition government before last was the first time the Arabs were ever allowed to be part of the coalition government at all. In the, you know, they have essentially a parliamentary system in their Knesset there. And the tradition always was, always for decades, was that any party who has the capability of achieving power and the prime ministership, if they ally with the Arabs, would rather let the other guys take over than ally with the Arabs. And that was how it always was. The first time they ever broke, the one and only time they broke that tradition was the coalition before last, I believe under uh, Yair Lapid, uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. 
Uh, but otherwise, the tradition is they have representation in the Knesset, but they're never allowed to be part of the executive branch of the government. They're never allowed the ministerships to run the actual government at all. Mm. Um, but so anyway, I'm off on a tangent because the real point is that with the massive ethnic cleansing campaign of 48, we're being very descriptive and not normative here. That was sustainable. It worked. They created an 80-20 super-duper majority Jewish state so it could be a Jewish democracy and go about their business. And if they let the Palestinians come home, the refugees, at least to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem, let them have independence and a Palestinian state on that 22%, then it wouldn't be perfect. And there'd be a lot of Palestinians who still want their old property back on the other side of the so-called green line there in so-called Israel proper. But I'll tell you what, it would be one, you know, I don't know, 98% less of a controversy than it is right now, where these territories essentially are occupied. And right. because that was what happened in 1967 was Israel fought a war. They started the war. They called it preemptive Pre strike. Right, yeah, I was going to say they claimed yep. which, yeah. It's <laughs> and they hit, they, they fought Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. And they took the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Now, none of this was the Palestinians' fault. They hadn't done anything. They were just stuck in the West Bank in between these states. But the Israelis got the West Bank. And the thing about that, Jacob, is that they don't call it the West Bank, or at least the religious right, or maybe the cynical nationalist right, whether they're religious or not, because there's secular right-wing parties in Israel too. And I think maybe cynically, they call it Judea and Samaria, right? And the point being that the Bible says we're taking this land. And if there are millions of Palestinians who live on it, well, forget them. They'll just, they'll just have to figure it out. They'll just have to go away someday. They'll just have to lay down and die. They'll just have to bug off, figure it out. But in the meantime, we're going to establish facts on the ground. And that's what's been happening since 1969, I guess, or maybe even earlier than that, is they've been quite illegally in violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention and the UN Charter, which they've signed on to, they have been transferring their civilian population into the occupied territories, East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip, although we'll get to 2005 and the so-called withdrawal and all of that in a minute. But in 67, the point being, they took that land and they did cleanse about 235,000 more people out of so-called Israel proper into the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, but they still kept them all in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Now, I'm not saying, oh, they should have continued cleansing them and taken all that land without the people, but I'm just saying that's the circumstance, is what they did essentially was they kidnapped millions of people. And they're holding them essentially in bondage, although they're not truly slaves because the Israelis don't want them, right? Although they do use them as like, you know, uh, uh, subwage labor, uh, exploitable, uh, cheap labor uh, in some cases. But mostly they just want them gone. But they won't, they essentially live in these giant prison camps. They don't have any representation in government, as our founders would have said, taxation, and versus representation. They have no voice in their security services whatsoever. I mean, the Palestinian Authority, um, and I'm skipping ahead now, but it, this was essentially created by the United States and Israel to be the trustees in the West Bank, the subcontractors for the Israeli occupation. So it doesn't, right. it's not a sovereign entity of the Palestinian people at all. If anything, it's a sovereign entity of George Bush and Condoleezza Rice.
right. that they so, installed over these poor people. So that's the controversy, right? And you know, you'll notice I haven't said a kind word about Hamas. We talk all about the history of Hamas here, but essentially that's what we're talking about. And I think what's so important, and and oh, I meant to mention this too. Uh, I haven't paid any attention to um, Ben Shapiro. I guess I need to put it on mute and watch his video with the closed caption on and figure <laughs> out what he's saying. Um, but I do know from the past that what he always tries to do is conflate Hamas in the Gaza Strip with, first of all, the Palestinian yep. Authority on the West Bank, but also with all the Palestinian people as well. Yep. And then he also tries to essentially imply, because he doesn't quite state it, I don't think, but he implies heavily that it, there already is an independent Palestinian state and that it is attacking poor Israel across its sovereign nation-state border. Right. Well, it's like they chose, they, they chose the PLL, they chose the Hamas. They just keep, they keep on rejecting. Every time Israel bends over backwards to try to give them their own state, they reject well, wait, it. They elect thought. terrorists. And that thought, that, that's a whole other argument, which we'll talk about in a second, but just on, the, on just like who they are in relation to each other. He talks about the Palestinians as though he compares them to Mexico. He says, what would we do if the Mexicans were firing rockets across the border, right? Implying that we're fighting a right. nation state and its military force, right? The, the, the analogy would be D.C. versus Mexico City here, right? We're instead, no, that's not it. We're talking about an Indian reservation or like Attica prison uprising. Right, where like yeah. these are people who are already surrounded, already beat and licked and conquered, who are trying to resist. And quite frankly, under the international law, they say all the time is this trope, well, Israel has the right to defend itself. Quite literally, under the international law, it's the Palestinians who have the right to defend themselves. They're under foreign military occupation. The Israelis are by definition the aggressors. And that doesn't mean when Hamas breaks out of the fence and slaughters innocent civilians, non-combatants, that's a different question. But when we're talking about fighting on their own territory or, you know, from it against armed forces oppressing them, the law is on their side. And they always just prejudice that question. Of course, it's begging the question, right? It's arguing past the sale that like, oh, don't they have the right to defend themselves? Who says they're defending themselves? I say they're offending. I say they're the aggressors, right? Um, and this is another thing Shapiro famously destroyed some 19-year-old college girl the other day by saying, don't you think there's a difference between deliberately killing some lady and her kid versus incidentally killing them while you're bombing a building that's hiding a rocket launcher? And the poor girl goes, abada, abada, I don't know. But the thing is, it's not in evidence that the Israelis are only bombing this building because there's a rocket launcher there. That's just what they say. And that's just what Ben Shapiro says. And they're just assuming their conclusion. They're just trying to tell you up front, like it's some mathematical certainty that we know that Israeli forces would never unleash a bomb unless they were 100% sure that they were targeting a combatant or his military equipment while he's off on his smoke break. Well, that's just a lie. We know that that's not true. They've said openly that what they're doing right now, for example, is focusing on area damage rather than precision, 
right? That's their own words, the government of Israel talking about how there are no innocent Palestinians. They're all guilty terrorists. That's the words of the president of Israel, who's not in charge. He's just, you know, a pretty powerless president in for a Western-style system. But uh, still, um, you know, he and, and many others in the Israeli government have been talking that way. So, um, you know, I think that's what's really important here for people to understand in terms of looking at the map. What we're really talking about here, Jacob, like the reason you had me on here is essentially to ask who's occupying who over there? Who's aggressing against who and who's oppressing who? And of course, the truth is that, yes, Hamas is a violent terrorist group. They murder civilians. But guys, think of it like this. The whole board is owned by Israel and the United States. Hamas are just pieces on the game, in the chess game. You can call them a rook or you can call them a pawn or you can call them a something. But Israel owns the board and the whole game. They own and control all of the territory. Hamas is just a piece in their puzzle. They can, you know, essentially build up and or tear down a group like Hamas at will. And they have. Um, and maybe this is a good segue into that. That So ever since 67, there were wise people on Israel's side who said we should not colonize the West Bank. We're going to end up with this apartheid situation, uh, essentially from the point of view of Israeli partisans now. They're going to kidnap a bunch of people they don't want, and they're going to dilute their 80-20 super-duper majority Jewish population, which they don't want to do. You know, They're going to be put in an awkward position of possibly having to give these people their rights or ultimately giving up the state and letting them have their independence anyway. So like I said, even David Ben-Gurion in 1967 said, we should not be doing this. This is just a path to destruction. And you know, Jimmy Carter in 1978 and 79 at Camp David thought that he had convinced them that, guys, this isn't a smart thing to do. So he helped them make peace with Egypt. And then, but part of that deal was they promised a process towards setting up an independent Palestinian state. And that fell apart because of the Israelis, the Jordanians, and the Palestinians really kind of all screwed up and into the Reagan years. And I guess the Reagan administration. Because you also had the Oslo Accords, which I, I think well, that's right. later, but, that's but later. Yes, Reagan Reagan didn't really do anything to enforce that. But that was the promise going back to '79 at Camp David, and then yeah. you know after Gulf War One, Iraq War One, H. W. Bush and James Baker thought that you know he had this high approval rating and he could push through at least the beginnings of of the process to negotiate an independent Palestinian state. And that was at the Madrid conference was where they first really got started with that. When they made a real mistake, it was Baker that really screwed up. And I, this may have happened anyway, because they, they had really come across uh, purposes with the Israel lobby. But James Baker had said, and I'm sure that this was in jest, because even though he's a mean SOB, if you're a foreign nation, if you think of the character of James Baker, he's actually kind of a jolly sort of a fellow, right? And so I'm sure he didn't really mean it in a mean way. But what he said was, quote, and I'm not going to actually say it, what he said, F the Jews, they don't mm -hmm. vote for us anyway. And when he said that, a lot of very you know, wealthy and influential American Jews said, well, we do have checkbooks. And you know, even if there's not enough of us that vote Republican that it matters very much, we're going to all withhold our money from you this year and give it to the Democrats instead. 
And it was a huge error of judgment on the part of Baker to blurt that. And so, you know, once it's in print, it's not funny. I'm sure in the room, he was like, ha, ha, ha. And everybody thought it was great and took a drink of scotch or whatever, right? But once it was in print, it was jihad time. Baker and Bush have got to go. And in fact, you can read at Mondo Weiss how Bush Sr. even blamed the Israelis for helping yeah. undermine his presidency and his loss to Bill Clinton in 1992. This is really important to me, Jacob, because... Um, I was very interested in that election. I was very lucky to learn that Bill Clinton was an evil Wall Street agent of the Rockefellers and whatever before he was ever sworn in. So when the the, the tide shifted from the Reagan-Bush years to now the Democrats, I was like, aha, when George Bush was smuggling cocaine, he was smuggling it into Bill Clinton's Arkansas. And they're all in on it together. Like, I just was lucky that, and that's true, by the way, 100%. And I was just lucky that I was able to learn about that, you know, very early on, um, you know, during that time. So I didn't, you know, uh, buy into Bill Clinton at all for a minute. And, and of course, Bill Hicks talked about what a puppet he was right away and all that. Um, but, Anyway, my point being, I still, even though I wasn't a partisan, and I was only, what, 16 at the time, I think, um, I was very interested in that election um, to see what was going to happen there in 92. And it's not like I was reading the Wall Street Journal every day and whatever. There was a lot I was missing. But I was watching a lot of TV news and cable news and stuff. And I was reading Newsweek, which my parents had a subscription to. I was very interested in that election. Nobody said anything about the Israel lobby has decided they don't like George Bush anymore and they're throwing all their weight to the Democrats because that's what Yitzhak Shamir and whatever his partisans over in Israel want. They just never said anything about that to us. But, but then I find out later that President Bush himself, senior we're talking about, blamed the Israel lobby for pulling out all their stops against him for his loss of his presidency. Man, well, I think yeah. the rest of the country had the right to know that too, that that was what was happening. Well, if you even talk about the idea of an Israel lobby today, that's one of the things that will get you called an anti-Semitic kook. It'd be like, what are you talking about? AIPAC.org. I mean, right, yeah. <laughs> well, going back, I, I want to... So, some of the things that like Shapiro was saying, which I wanted to get you to respond to, and I'll go through these briefly, because he was going through the, the narrative of the Palestinians just rejecting deal after deal. Uh, what's that saying? Goes right. The Palestinians never uh, turn down an opportunity to turn down an opportunity oh, or something like that. Yeah. And so like, he said basically at the Camp David Accords, like the... Uh, um, the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Menekem Begin, offered him a bunch of stuff. They turned it down. Then in the Oslo Accords, uh, I guess the Prime Minister then was uh, uh, Yitzhak uh, Rabin and mm -hmm. offered him a bunch of stuff and they still turned it down. What I thought was funny in his explanation of all this history is that he mentioned that uh, with the Camp David Accords of 78 or 79, that the Egyptian uh, president was like assassinated as kind of like backlash for that, but then completely skipped over the Israeli prime minister being assassinated after the Oslo Accords, mm -hmm. as if like, again, the whole time he's painting this narrative, like the Jews are just these great people who would love to live at peace with the Palestinians, and the Palestinians are just these angry, you know, extremist, uh, you know, Jew-hating Muslims who can't be gotten along with. And it's like, hold on, even if, you know, we can acknowledge there maybe are some, you know, Muslims who, who, who hate the Jews, like we talked about earlier, you're not even acknowledging 
the, the, you know, like what led to the assassination of that Israeli prime minister? Like he just glosses mm-hmm. over that part of history. Like right. it's no big deal, right? right? We'll mention when, we'll mention when the Muslims get angry at their leaders for trying to pursue peace, but the Jews never get, you know, the Jewish people in Israel never get angry. None of them get angry when one of their guys tries to establish peace. I thought that was interesting. And then he brought up the 2000 uh, Camp David summit, which I know you at the very end snuck in an explanation of uh, your recent appearance on Timcast. I wanted you to respond to what Shapiro was talking about with the the Camp David and Oslo Accords, and then uh, give people again the explanation that you you gave on Timcast regarding the uh, the 2000 Camp David summit because that's the big one people point to and go right. well Yasser Arafat just you know uh, just shot everything down and left and then went back home and started bombing Israel again that's yeah, that's the narrative we get yeah what a narrative I'll tell you what <laughs> you think if a Palestinian had assassinated Yitzhak Rabin because he was trying to make peace and the Palestinian hated peace so much didn't he was so opposed to a Palestinian state he had shot Rabin you think that Shapiro would have mentioned that right but instead it was it was a right-wing Israeli settler a Benjamin Netanyahu fan and by the way you can read um, his lament in the Washington Post the assassin that Netanyahu was not the guy he was all cracked up to be. So you can see how he was like a former believer in Netanyahu um, at the time that he murdered Rabin. And Netanyahu had just been at a rally where he accused Rabin of treason and all of these things. So yeah, I wonder why that guy left out of the story. Yeah, yeah. I think you can surmise. (laughs) Um, But look, as I said, at Camp David, what happened was they agreed essentially on a process to build toward a state. And then the Reagan administration didn't have their heart in it. And the, um, of course, they invaded Lebanon right after that. And the Palestinians, the Jordanians, and the Israelis all kind of dropped the ball on proceeding with the process as it was supposed to take place there. But I'm sure this didn't make it into Shapiro's narrative either, was that by 1988, Yasser Arafat, and Fatah had completely forsworn terrorism and recognized Israel up front within 1967 borders and said, let's negotiate a Palestinian state from here. That was not in his explanation at all. (laughs) Imagine that. And then, so that was ignored for about a year. But then, you know, Bush Sr., as I say, after Iraq War One, I picked that up. uh, That was ignored for a few years, but I picked that up. And they tried to run with that at Madrid. But at Madrid, you know, and look, Arafat and his guys had committed their sins, no question. But, you know, the Israelis also uh, are, are brutal. Their country is founded by a bunch of terrorist groups, too. I mean, all these guys are are serious men and not playing around. Tough guys and, and, and deadly sinners, all of them in their past, and their, their brutal violence against each other's armed factions here. Um, so there is a moral equivalence there, surely. The Israelis said, look, Arafat can't come. He has to stay in Tunis on the phone and we'll only take these people who aren't even from the Palestinian Authority and we'll only let them come. And I don't want to hear nothing about no maps. And I don't want to hear anything about a Palestinian state other than someday maybe we'll get to a point where we begin to discuss that and this kind of thing. And the way they build up this diplomacy is, you know, made to be extended and made eventually to fail. So that was as far as Madrid got. And then when Clinton came in, in 93, he did, they did, Oslo was by, 
I think they shook hands in the spring. I think it was it was Rabin and Arafat shook hands on the White House lawn in the spring, and they agreed to go to Oslo. Is I think how it happened. Um, and then in Oslo, what they agreed upon was not oh here's the state take it or leave it. That wasn't it. Uh, like in the narrative, at least as you rehearse it here, I, I trust you. Um, the deal was here's the peace process. Here's how eventually we're going to get to negotiate a Palestinian state. And as Jeremy R. Hammond shows in his book, Obstacles to Peace, that what they actually had on offer at that time was far less than a real state. Now, possibly, Jacob, you would say to Arafat, take it, dude. You can build on this later. You can push them out of some more of the occupied zones later. But this is better than nothing something, something fine. But then some guy up and shot Yitzhak Rabin in 1995. And the thing was brought essentially to a screeching halt. And right after that, Netanyahu came in. And I urge people to look at this. Sometimes you have to search around because there's one version that no longer has its closed captioning anymore. Or it's, some, it's English transcription anymore. But you can find it on YouTube. You just have to search around a little bit. And what it is, you'll know it when you find it. It's Benjamin Netanyahu sitting in some lady's living room. And he's talking to this lady and her kid is there as well, or her grandson maybe. And he's explaining how essentially he screwed Bill Clinton. And what I did was I told Bill, yeah, Bill, don't worry. All I need is these security areas in area C and these small military areas, but I'll give them the rest. But ha, 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 area C is like two thirds of the West Bank. And that sucker, Bill Clinton, he fell for it. And, you know, I can, I, what I want to do, I want to hit the Palestinians hard, man. I want to hit them so hard, they're dizzy, something very close to that. He didn't say dizzy, but along those lines, I want to absolutely clobber them. And she says, oh, but BB, then the world will say that you're a butcher and that you're bad. And he says, I'm not worried about the world. The world will say what I tell them to say. Take America, for example. That's what he says. Take America, for example. Here's how I got over on Bill Clinton. Hardy, har, 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 he says. And then... He says, America is a thing that is easily moved. 80% of them support us. It's absurd, he says. Take it personal, audience. That's Benjamin Netanyahu mocking you for believing in him. You know, 80% of the Americans support us. It's absurd, he says. I can get away with whatever I want when it comes to the Americans. And... And people can find that. And he's speaking in Hebrew and you can see in the thing, he says, turn off the video so I can speak frankly. And the kid gets up and it's like he turns it off and then he turns it back on again or like he, the button stuck or it was deliberate mm -hmm. or he got back up later and turned it on and BB didn't notice or what, I don't know exactly. But there he is talking like the camera's not rolling. And he's being very frank talking to this woman explaining and this is Israeli media that unearthed this. You know what I mean? It's not, the, the transcription is not in doubt. None of that was challenged. It was all true and, and covered deeply in the, in the Israeli press at the time. Um, so, uh, and look, this isn't to say that the Palestinians are perfect. Uh, they're far from it. And, and Yasser Arafat and his guys, I'm sure, were a pain. But you get to the year 2000, and this is the book, I think I have it right here. 
The book is The Truth About Camp David. And I apologize, it's Clayton Swisher. I apologize, Mr. Swisher. I got the name of the book wrong on Timcast. I called it like the secret <laughs> history or something. It's The Truth About Camp David. And I admit I'm not all the way through with it yet. I got, I have a lot of jobs, okay? But I'm, I am planning very soon on getting back to this thing and finishing it. But what I've already learned is essentially what part of which I already knew was that America was being represented at Camp David by Dennis Ross, who they called Israel's lawyer, and who even the Israelis at times objected to the fact that he was so subjectively on their side. And they needed someone to kind of stand in the middle there. <laughs> I mean, think about that, right? And so this is kind of the, the whole game as it's being played. Also, Bill... The president said, we got five days and then I have to leave for Singapore or whatever it was and put this time crunch on him. And then his men were not prepared. So one of the things that they did was instead of saying, okay, the basis for this whole negotiation is UN Security Council Resolution 242, which was how they've always begun these negotiations at Oslo and at Camp David before. And they had guys who'd been at Camp David before in 79, who are now at Camp David 2000 and saying, here's how we did it, okay? We do the basis on Resolution 242. And then I don't know what the jargon is. Forgive me. I was never a State Department weenie. <laughs> but they have a process basically where they say, here's the deal. And then it says in parentheses, but the Israeli take is this and the Palestinian take is that. And it goes, here's the next deal. The Israeli take is this, the Palestinian take is that. And it goes all the way down the list of the different things that they're going to decide. They're, they're negotiating over the things they're going to negotiate here. The clock is ticking. And then it was, whether I don't know if it was deliberate sabotage or what, it, according to his book, it doesn't seem like it was. It just seemed like junior work, intern work, screwed up. And one of the later things, I forget if it was East Jerusalem or the right of return or it was something important. It only had, if I remember it right, it only had the Palestinians' take and it didn't have the Israelis' take. Well, so then the Israelis flipped out and then the Palestinians counter-flipped out. And now it's three o'clock in the morning and everybody's up, you know, arguing and yelling at each other. And it's because the Bill Clintonites screwed up in the process in the way they had, the paper wasn't done yet when they hit print and sent it out. And it was enough to completely disrupt everything for three days. And meanwhile, there's no offer being made in writing anywhere. There's no real map that says this is exactly what it'll be. And so the way Swisher puts it is that Arafat knew, or I guess the way he said it, he thought, and I think probably for very good reason, that he was being set up to take the fall that ultimately they were offering him an offer he couldn't possibly accept. And then he smelled a rat. Oh, I see how y'all are. You're going to blame this all on me. And in fact, Swisher describes a meeting between Arafat and Clinton where he says, Mr. President, they're being totally intransigent on issue XYZ. I think primarily they're talking about land swaps, the right of return, and uh, East Jerusalem. and. And Clinton says, listen, I know they're being intransigent. I understand, and it ain't fair, and don't worry. I, I promise you, I won't let everybody blame you at the end of this thing if it falls apart. Huh. And then, of course, that's exactly what he does. Because exactly, he's Bill yep. Clinton, the lion, scumbag, backstabber. And, and by the way, I got tripped up on this 
Oh, by the way, also, in the middle of these negotiations, Ehud Barak's government falls apart. He loses his majority in the Knesset. So now he's a, a lame duck prime minister out of town with no support at home. And then Ariel Sharon marches up the Temple Mount and causes a giant riot. And that was so obviously deliberate at the time to sabotage the peace negotiations. I guarantee you Ben Shapiro left that out too. The yeah. Ariel Sharon, the leader I, at that I, time I'm, of the I'm coup. not exaggerating. Each time Shapiro in this video, and I'll link it in the show notes, send it to you if you want to watch it on mute, like you said. Every time he brings up these supposed offers, it, it's almost like a meme. He says, and then they go, no. And then they go back to bombing Israel. Like that, that's just every time. He's like, no, they say no. And then they go right back to, it, as if it's a that simple. And B, it's just, it's this gross collectivizing of, well, obviously the Palestinian leaders here, whether it's the PLO or later Hamas, are synonymous with the entirety of the Palestinian people. And so, you know, we have to collectivize them in terms of our judgment uh, of them. I mean, it's it's just yeah. gross. And look, during this whole time, right, from the late 80s through the 90s, Israel, their Shin Bet, which is like the FBI counterintelligence division, domestic intelligence services, and their Mossad were deliberately and explicitly grooming Hamas as a right-wing religious alternative to the sort of half-commie, half-nationalist PLO. Right. And so, you know, people just kind of assume that wherever there's Muslims, they're all fundamentalists and they're all a bunch of whack jobs and they're all a bunch of 13th century-ites and all this stuff. But in fact, the enemy in the Cold War was communism and nationalism and America and Britain and later Israel for the same reasons, essentially, embraced and nurtured Islamist forces because the Islamists were determined enemies of both the commies and the nationalists. And so this is the same thinking that went into, and this is, you know, American Britain backing the Muslim Brotherhood all through the Middle East and including in, you know, Sunnis and Shiite branches and whatever all throughout the Cold War. Um, well, that's who Hamas is. They are a break off of the Palestinian faction of the Muslim Brotherhood. And in the 1980s, the late 1980s, they essentially had started as a charity. And I don't know what their intentions were from the very beginning, but they started basically as a charity because the people are so impoverished living in essentially these occupation you know, zones, these concentration camps. They're completely dependent on these religious organizations to keep the kiddos fed and read to, you know, and what have you. So... That was how they started getting built up. And the Israeli uh, uh, intelligence services thought this is great and co-opted them and financed them directly and arrested all their opponents, not just the PLO, but basically anybody around, even other religious groups that were their competition. And people can read all about this in Andrew Higgins in the Wall Street Journal and also Richard Sale in UPI, that's S-A-L-E, Sale, in UPI. And these are both conservative writers, newsmen for conservative publications. I mean, um, Richard Sale was known as very close to the Reaganites in the 1980s, for example. And, and his sources in the article clearly come from the highest levels of American intelligence and Israeli intelligence services are talking to him is where he's getting the story from. And they tell him outright, yeah, we regret it, man. We shouldn't have done that. What a huge mistake it was. But here's the thing. For... 
especially the Likud, uh, people like Ariel Sharon and Benjamin Netanyahu, keeping the Palestinians divided is keeping them conquered. And they know that there is pressure from the EU, especially, but even somewhat from the United States on them to negotiate a Palestinian state. But the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are quite literally separated from each other. And so if you can keep opposite political factions in charge in the two territories as well and prevent them from uniting, then that prevents any kind of united front to negotiate with. And particularly now that Arafat is gone, and I think it's pretty clear the Israelis murdered him, but regardless, um, his replacement, Mahmoud Abbas, is exactly the kind of guy that you might expect them to deal with. Well, that's why they prefer Hamas. So go back to 2005. I guarantee you this is in Shapiro's narrative that Ariel Sharon magnanimously, unilaterally withdrew from the Gaza Strip in 2005. Why he set the Palestinians free. And look at how they repaid him by launching a bunch of rockets. But of course... Again, this is still occupied territory. No one in the international legal community was fooled by this so-called withdrawal. It wasn't a negotiated deal at all. And they were still under the complete territorial control of Israel that controls their coast and, you know, all their ability to go out to sea. I mean, the fishermen aren't allowed more than three miles offshore and this kind of thing under the control of the Israeli Navy. The Israeli uh, Air Force, of course, controls all their airspace. They have no airport. Right, I mean, they're, we, they're not allowed to travel. They're as we see totally today, they control their electric and water and and, right? and stuff. <laughs> so and it's so, not, it's crazy. So here's the thing, and um, you know what? I have it here. So let me find it for you, and I'll read you the quote and get it right. Um, Ariel Sharon's Ariel Sharon in uh, 05 had a uh, an advisor named Dove Weissglass, and. Essentially, he was being criticized for withdrawing from the Gaza Strip. How could you ever relinquish any of our territory to our enemies, they said, you know, along those lines. And here's what he said. I think this is just, you couldn't make this stuff up, right? Quiet part out loud kind of deal like they say. It's just perfect, okay? Dig this. Dove Weissglass, Sharon's advisor, said, quote, The significance of the disengagement plan is the freezing of the peace process. And when you freeze that process, you prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. And you prevent a discussion on the refugees, the borders, and Jerusalem. Effectively, this whole package called the Palestinian state, with all that it entails, has been removed indefinitely from our agenda. And all this, with authority and permission, all with a presidential blessing and the ratification of both houses of Congress, that disengagement is actually formaldehyde. It supplies the amount of formaldehyde that is necessary so there will not be a political process with the Palestinians. The disengagement plan makes it possible for Israel to park conveniently in an interim situation that distances us as far as possible from political pressure. It legitimizes our contention that there is no negotiating with the Palestinians. And we educated the world to understand that there is no one to talk to. And we received a no one to talk to certificate. 
And that certificate says there's no one to talk to. As long as there is no one to talk to, the geographic status quo remains intact. And the certificate will be revoked only when this and this happens. When Palestine becomes Finland. See you then and shalom. By the way, did you watch the debate Tom Woods hosted between Alan uh, Futterman and Jeremy Ahamon? And when I was just dumbfounded when Tom raised this, he didn't read the whole quote, but he raised this thing uh, in support for Hamas to sabotage any idea of like, uh, you know, negotiations for peace because look how, you know, extreme and, and, and you know, they won't talk to us and things like that. And all Alan was like, well, you know, governments do bad things. I don't know. Like, he, he, I was just like, how can you have no... Like, how can you support Israel? How can you hear that and be like, yes? I mean, as a Christian, I believe that what the Bible says about like governments is that they should only exist to protect the innocent and that their 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 uh, use of force is only legitimate against those who do evil. Like that's that's what it clearly says. And that they are supposed they're held to a standard that all Christians are held to to pursue peace as far as it depends on you to pursue peace. And it's like Christians, if you're listening to this, you just heard that quote. Does this sound like leaders who are doing absolutely everything in their power to pursue peace? It's just, it's not. There's no way, there's no explanation around that. That's why Alan had nothing to say in that debate uh, with, with Jeremy on Tom Woods' show, because there's no defense of it. You just have to like, oh, that's bad. But let's look at all this other stuff first. Like you have to like hand wave it away. It, it's... Yep. Yeah. Here, I got a couple more. And look, people can go to antiwar.com slash Scott, and I have this article that I uh, co-authored with Connor Freeman. Well, I researched it. He wrote it. It's called Netanyahu's support for Hamas backfired. And look, it's not conspiracy stuff. I mean, I'm just quoting the Wall Street Journal here. I'm just quoting Haaretz. And you, like, you like, to say, you, you, like you like to say, you got the footnotes. I got the footnotes <laughs> here. And you can read them yourself. Okay, Netanyahu explaining this policy to the leaders of his party, the Likud, in 2019, said, anyone who wants to thwart the, pardon me, I'm going to start that over. Anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy to isolate the Palestinians in Gaza from the Palestinians in the West Bank. Again, quiet part out loud. The emperor wears no clothes and he knows that you can see and he doesn't care, okay? That's the deal. Now, one more. This is from Bezalel Smotrich and he is currently the finance minister, okay? One of the most powerful leading members of Netanyahu's cabinet. And he is the leader of the religious Zionist party in the Knesset, okay? And look, again, these aren't critics. These are the people promoting and defending and explaining the brilliance of their policy, okay? And this is from 2021. The PA is a burden. The PA, that means the Palestinian Authority, in other words, Mahmoud Abbas and the remnants of Yasser Arafat's old group that is in charge in the West Bank, okay? That's what we mean when we say the PA. 
The PA is a burden, and Hamas is an asset. On the same international field, in this game of delegitimization, think about it for a moment. The PA is a burden, and Hamas is an asset. It's a terrorist organization. No one will recognize it. No one will give it status at the International Criminal Court. No one will let it put forth a resolution at the UN Security Council. Then we would need an American veto, or we would not need an American veto. Given that the main game, the central court where we play now, is in the international delegitimization, their Abbas is beating us in significant spaces. He means in terms of public relations. And Hamas, at this point, in my opinion, will be an asset. And then the actual original question was, yeah, but don't we need to be worried about the danger of Hamas? Right? And he ends with, I don't think we need to worry about that. Okay? And then, so by the way, I left out, I'm sorry, I, this should have been included in the quote here, is in the Netanyahu quote where he says, you must support the establishment of a Palestinian state. In that same quote, he says, they will never negotiate, which of course is the whole point. It's actually not true, but that's the narrative that the whole point is we don't have to negotiate with these kooks. But then he says, we control the height of the flame. Right, yeah. Meaning, yes, they're dangerous, terrorists, Hamas, but we have them locked up tight behind those fences. And we're essentially what? Like they're a lion and we're the tamer and we know what right. we're doing. Right. right. That's the that's the idea. And so then what really happened? What happened was the flame jumped out of the pan and burnt half the house down. Yes. And this guy, you know, he, he's too clever by half, as always. Yeah. Well, once again, Ron Paul is right about blowback, and no one in the United States government or Israeli government or anywhere else has learned that lesson, unfortunately. You know, one thing I want to talk on here, because we're 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 nearing towards the end. And I want to be, uh, you know, respectful to your time. There's this argument, because I think we covered a lot of, you know, the, the broad strokes of that history pretty good there. Um, but there's this, you know, what do we do now? And you kept repeating this argument on TimCast. And I heard when Michael Rechtenwald was on, you kind of tried to make it as well. And it, it kind of felt like it wasn't fully sinking in with the people there. They're a little bit more like American first kind of guys. And so they like they were agreeing with us saying, you know, America should pull out their funding. We should not be, you know, supporting them. Um, it's, you know, and they were like, well, yeah, we shouldn't do that because it's not in our interests. But, and that's true. But beyond that, you were trying to make the point how it's a moral hazard uh, for America to be basically being this like insurance that covers anything that Israel does in the same way that, you know, the Federal Reserve acts like this, you know, insurance for, you know, reckless spending and decisions mm -hmm. of the big bankers and, and, and leads to our, these, these economic bubbles and collapses and stuff that we've seen in our country, that that same kind of idea is at play with America supporting the things that Israel does both financially and and politically on the on the global stage. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think, and I want you to, to, to touch on this, if people want to see peace in this region, there there are no easy, you know, easy fixes, like one, you know, one sentence answers to this in terms of like things will change overnight. But part of the solution has to be changing the incentive structure. And right now, the, the Israeli government, their incentive structure is because of American interference 
that they can do whatever they want. And I feel like that's got to change. They, they got to, you know, be put on the spot to deal with their own people and their neighbors, including the Palestinians, including yeah. Iran, including Jordan, including, they need to be put in the spot of having to deal with them on their own terms and not with the backing of the American imperial That's uh, right. Regime. And look, you know, Jacob, I've been regretting because Tom Woods asked me this and I heard him, he asked Amic Adams this the other day as well, that, um, you know, what were they thinking and trying to build this Jewish state in this place where they're going to be surrounded by enemies from now on and that kind of thing. And it's a good premise for a question, but I think that there's a good answer to it too, which is that, and yeah, it's taken some American welfare, but still it wouldn't have to. There's a way to get along. That they've been at peace with Egypt for 40 years. They made a final peace deal that they've stuck with with Jordan in 1994, right? 30 years ago, they've, uh, they made a deal, a permanent peace with Jordan. And so I, I really think that if, again, as I was saying before, if they'd given up the West Bank a long time ago instead of colonizing the whole thing, let the Palestinians have the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in East Jerusalem. It's not a perfect solution. It sucks. It's 22%. But Arafat was willing to accept that back in 88. And if the the people with the right of return can't, had the West Bank to come back to and, and you know, a prosperous and free West Bank and, and Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem to come back to, then that's at least some kind of concession compared to you're not allowed to come home at all. And if you did, it's to live in a squalid refugee camp because you still have nothing like sovereignty and peace and prosperity, you know, to live in. And I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent. I started to say this earlier that I got called out and caught out on not knowing the answer to a thing by um, Viva Free, who had me on. And he said about the year 2000, yeah, but Arafat insisted that... Uh, they had the full right of return and that all Palestinians and all refugee camps across the Middle East would have the right to return to Israel proper, not just to the new Palestinian state, but to Israel itself. But that's not true. And it's in Swisher's book, again, The Truth About mm -hmm. Camp David, is the only thing going on there is he's technically right that Arafat insisted that the Israelis technically recognize the Palestinian right of return. However, the actual implementation and allowance of any numbers of Palestinians to truly come back to, again, what we call pre-67 borders or Israel proper, that was always absolutely negotiable and it was not what sabotaged that negotiation. It's just not true. It's a great little thing for, you know, I'm sure Viva Free was being honest, but whoever told him that, it's not true. And once I'm done with this book, I'm going to send it to him and say, I want you to read this and interview the guy that wrote it and then we'll see what's up. Because, you know, right. he's a smart guy and, I don't know, seemingly yeah. well-meaning. Well, it's just, to me, there, there there's something too that needs to be said that if these, because you hear from Ben Shapiro and everyone else, like nobody wants these people. Like they're they're just these, you know, they keep uh, voting in these terrorists. Never yes. mind looking at the 06 election and the numbers. They don't actually add up to like all the Palestinians voted for Hamas. It's not even close to that. No, they but got also, a plurality only. They didn't get a majority in a single district. Right. And by right. the way, I'm sorry, because you're on a train of thought here, but just in case you're going to leave it behind. That was what Hitler said about the Jews at the Evian conference. Oh, hmm. nobody wants them, huh? I guess right. what you're really saying is I'm right about them. Right. Ha, 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 he said. I swear to God, that's Hitler yeah. 
talking about the Jews had Evian, and that's what the, is in my feed all day of pro-Zionist partisans saying about yeah, the Palestinians. How- and meanwhile, look, it's not, I mean, what is even the point of that? What, the Palestinians are disgusting, filthy terrorists with tuberculosis, and so you can't let them in? No. What it is, is one, they don't want them to lose their land. That's the last, that's the last of the Palestinian land that they still hold, not that they have any real rights on it, but also if they were really all finally cleansed out of there, like let's say that they were made so miserable that they were to flee into the open arms of the king of Jordan right now or something like that, then that means that the Arabs and the Muslims, and for that matter, the Christians, give up all of their rights to the holy sites of Jerusalem and the rest of the whole area there. So, oh no, you know what it is? It's because they're filthy, disgusting creatures and everyone hates them, says Ben Shapiro and Adolf Hitler, who he's mimicking there when he says that. There's a lot of, again, being justified by the people who love to say never again, right? Like, isn't it ironic? Like, it's like, never again, unless it's... It's Goblin's Law. You're, you're on one hand, never again. And on the other hand, you're never allowed to say Hitler because it's Godwin's law that you always say Hitler. But meanwhile, right. like the whole lesson of World War II is don't let the ideology of national socialism take over your country either, dude, because look at what happens. It's ugly as hell. Yes. And, yeah. you know, I mean, what can you say about this? Well, and, and again, these, it, it's, it's just a fact that there are thousands, I mean, I think a large number of both Jews and Christians living in these areas with these supposedly just violent, uncontainable, like, you know, unable to be lived with Palestinian Arabs, right? It's like, so wait, why haven't they killed all the Jews and Christians in the area? Yeah. Oh, I got that. Look, I got that a lot. When when Israel was bombing the church, uh, when they Israel's bombed the killed church, more Christians in Gaza than than. Then look, Hamas probably I, has. I, look, I'll tell you, Jacob, I have people in my mentions, well-meaning people in my mentions said, well, I don't get it. I mean, if these guys are like crazy Islamist terrorist murderers, how could they allow Christian churches in their towns? And it's like, yeah, well, yeah. because you've been lied to. That's why, <laughs> right? Like, you know, even Al-Qaeda, many of their members were not really religious nuts. I mean, Bin Laden and Zawahiri themselves were, and Zarqawi was, Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, obviously were. But a lot of those hijackers were secular guys. A lot of the operatives of ISIS, a lot of the fighters for ISIS on the ground during Iraq War III, for example, they're secular guys. They're fighting over land and territory against the people that they consider their oppressors and or the people that they want to steal land from or however you want to characterize it. But they're earthlings fighting over earth and politics. And so... You know, why is that Christian church there? For the same reason it's been there the whole time that the Muslims have been predominant for the last 1,300 years. One of the oldest Christian churches in the world. (laughs) That's right. It's the oldest Christian church. And because the Muslims have nothing against those people at all. You know, they were always, again, and this goes again to people got to check out this great history by Martyr Maid, where, you know, Jews and Christians lived in peace with the Muslims there for you know, centuries, not that there were no conflicts, but it was the creation of this exclusivist chauvinist state at the expense of everybody else that is the cause of all the problems here. I mean, they could have come and said, what the hell, we're creating a new multinational democracy here and we're going to figure it out. 
but without purging everybody from their lands. And they could have said, listen, we insist as part of our coalition, we are bringing Jewish emigres here, right? Fine, whatever, something. But they still didn't have to do it the way that they did it at the expense of the local people and, and set up the crisis and that they, look, we're still living with. And if they wanted peace, they could do it now. They could say, you know what? We're not going to care about keeping some sort of ethnic majority here. We're just going to, you know, maybe it wouldn't be the perfect, there's no perfect solution, but wouldn't it be better rather than just this, the status quo and and the and the cycle of violence and the bombing uh, innocent civilians? You know what? We're going to, you know, I guess it'd be kind of an annex or whatever. We're just going to, or admit that we already own this land. Right. We're going to extend equal rights to everyone living there and... Basically, like, let's reset, let's heal. If you're still going to do terrorism, well, then we'll go after you and we'll right. treat it like if, if terrorism happens here. Yeah, if terrorism happens here in America, we don't yeah. bomb entire city blocks going after That's the terrorists. Right. That's it's, right. And and look, it could be a binational type state where yeah. the Palestinians have their own local police forces who are very lightly armed. And again, just like the PA is now under the yeah. authority of Israel and America, really, anyway. Um, and then... You know, that way you wouldn't have, you know, the problem of of cross-ethnic police forces causing resentment and oppressions and whatever, but they could still have equal rights essentially in one state. Absolutely. It's doable, man. Look, if they figured it out in Bosnia, then they can do it in Israel and Palestine. This exactly. whole caricature from TV and Hollywood that these Palestinians are monsters and all this is just not true, dude. They're just like Mexicans, right? They're a little bit different from you, but actually not that different from you, man. That's exactly what they are, right? As human men, just the same as everybody else. And by the way, we didn't have time to talk about this and I got to go, but there's a chip on my shoulder about this and there should be for everybody else too. And that is the role that Israel played in getting America to launch Iraq War II which George yeah. Bush Jr. wanted to do, but it was well. the neoconservatives <laughs> who made that happen and they did it for Israel. Yep. And it's the cause of so much grief in this century already. And it just did not have to happen whatsoever. And it is, the story's all there and enough already too. Yeah, and say, that's like the very beginning of this. of this book. So definitely, yeah. uh, I know you got to go, Scott. And I do I appreciate your time. Uh, those who have been listening, again, check out Scott's show, check out his books. They, they go into all the things he was just talking about. Uh, Scott, anything you want to plug before we jump out? Yeah, uh, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, libertarianinstitute.org. And uh, yeah, find me on Amazon too. All right. Thanks, Scott. Right, thanks, thanks everybody much, for listening. Talk to you later. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.